This episode of the Ankler Podcast is brought to you by Universal Pictures Oppenheimer, written and directed by Christopher Nolan. The New York Times calls it staggering, and the Washington Post declares Oppenheimer is a masterpiece, brilliantly acted and thoroughly engrossing. Killian Murphy gives, quote, a performance that imprints on the imagination. And the LA Times says Robert Downey Jr. is outstanding, and Emily Blunt brings a startling force to the role. It's, quote, one of the best movies of the century. Oppenheimer, for your consideration in all categories, including Best Picture, now nominated for eight Golden Globe Awards, including Best Picture Drama. Welcome to the Ankler Podcast. This is Sean McNulty from the Wake Up Newsletter here at the Ankler on the afternoon of Thursday, January 4th here in New York City. I'm joined by Richard Rushfield. In Los Angeles, a happy 2024 to you, Richard. Richard is, of course, wearing his trademark black happy 2024 sash. It's very thematic, <laughs> Richard. We appreciate that. I'm feeling festive. It's going to be rocking New Year's Eve all year long for me here. Sponsored by the Penske Media Corporation, no doubt. Exactly. Exactly. We're going to get into your resolutions for the new year. Some really thoughtful ideas from you this week in your column that I want to dive into. And later on, we'll be joined by uh, Claire Atkinson, who has a, a piece uh, fresh out of the Ankler oven looking at Hollywood's Saudi whispers, which we'll uh, get into in a little bit. But first, let's bring in uh, Peter Kiefer, who, Richard, I don't want to start off with a beef here, but I think Peter is now the Ankler's official Golden Globes correspondent since you're not going. Is this, is this, am wow. I getting this correct? Or what's, I don't want to, you know, listen, I don't want to start anything here. It's the start of the podcast. <laughs> fresh new, new year, new podcast, Richard. I mean, uh, are you all right? You know, what's going on? I mean, I'm going to miss my time there. And the uh, with the with the esteemed members of the foreign press, and now with uh, Jay, all Jay Penske's best friends uh, squeezed in there. But if if it's time to pass the torch, so so must it be. I see. So, Peter, do we add this to your CV? Uh, how are your buffet reporting capabilities? Uh, what, what's what's the story? It, this has been a twenty year campaign of mine to to. <laughs> To dethrone Richard Rushfield from the uh, the Golden Globes throne, so I uh, thank you for finally uh, providing me with this a major uh, milestone in my career. So uh, no, I I'm not going, but uh, I did I did get uh, I got some. Uh, you, you have some good intel this week, Peter. I'm trying to weasel my way into a couple parties this weekend. So if, right. if that if that makes me uh, the official correspondent, so be it. Yeah, so you know you had some controversy around the Globes here, Peter. I know we we're all a little little stunned this week, but you had a really good piece looking at some things that. Uh, well, uh, frankly, we'll still see what happens. We're recording here on Thursday. The show was on Sunday, maybe especially on the, on the red carpet. But what's afoot at the Golden Globes this year, Peter? Well, I mean, I'll start with the story that uh, we published yesterday. And the Globes have always been sort of a, a much looser affair. There's alcohol is famously served. And that, I think, in part allows for people to sort of speak off the cuff. And often politics becomes front and center at the Globes, whether it's in acceptance speeches or on the red carpet. Obviously, the huge geopolitical issue of the moment is the war between Israel and Hamas. And yesterday, we reported that it was very, very likely that that uh, extremely divisive and explosive topic was going to make its way into this year's production. We reported that there is a campaign underway industry-wide to try and encourage individuals to wear a yellow ribbon, which would be in, in an effort to sort of remind people of the hostages who were captured on October 7th and who remain in captivity. This is not the first time 
that a ribbon campaign. I mean, no, it's been over the years. There's been yeah. several, right? Yeah, there's been several. There's been, you know, at the peak of Time's Up, there was a similar sort of effort to try and get people to uh, adorn themselves with some sort of an ornament to remind people of the of the efforts to to, to bring awareness to those causes. Black Lives Matter, a similar sort of a campaign. But this year's, uh, I think, a little bit different, and which I got into in my story, which was that since the war broke out, this topic is is just particularly explosive, and it has caused a huge amount of drama throughout the entertainment industry. People have lost jobs uh, across multiple industries, but especially in Hollywood, people have been uh, dropped from films and television productions. Agencies have, have cut uh, clients for uh, inflammatory comments that they've made. There has just been a lot of rancor and divisiveness surrounding this which makes this campaign to try and get people to wear this thing, I think, of interest. And I think that it's pretty safe to say uh, that when you have the foreign press moving in, and this is all happening uh, in a particularly newsy week about uh, some bad events that have occurred surrounding the the, the war, it it stands to reason that this is going to come up. And I think it's going to be a tricky one for individuals. So I spoke with some PR specialists about how they would advise their clients to deal with this issue if they are prompted to say something by a reporter on the red carpet or if they feel so compelled to say something behind the podium or, or whatever. And I, people are, are nervous, that's for sure, because it, it would be pretty easy to stick your foot in your mouth on this topic, as we've seen people do over the past two months. But the very sort of genuine general advice that I think people are giving to their clients is that a try and, and, and stay in, in safe territory, which is about you know, keep it very human. Try not to take too hard of a side either either which way. And if you're going to say something, try and make it sort of as bland as possible about just wanting, you know, the human suffering to end. And I think that this effort to remind people of the hostages is also a relatively safe one. I, I think it's hard to argue against the idea that these people who have been captive for so long should be brought home. So I'm curious to see what happens. I hope hopefully there won't be too much drama. Richard has written about the fact that there's been plenty of drama surrounding this already so far. But yes, we will see what happens during the, the show on, on Sunday. And if you want if you want proof that Hollywood is a very serious place, all you need to do is look to our annual fights over lapel flair and uh, on on red carpets and how much uh, venom and strife there is put into what color ribbon and tags people are going to wear because that will certainly change everything if we just get that right. Yeah. And Richard, you've been in the room several times. You know, it's not just about the red carpets, but, you know, the speeches are generally unpredictable, I guess, but a little more lighthearted, it seems. But certainly there's room here for a little bit of who knows what depends on, again, who wins and who gets on the stage, certainly, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a place where people can say anything. People generally don't go into the kind of mawkish, serious, deep issue speeches with their acceptance. They kind of get that it's kind of a silly place and making a, a serious, mostly they get it. Some people don't. Uh, oh, right. making, making a very, very serious speech about very, very serious things just doesn't, it, it just doesn't, uh, doesn't play like you might like it to. It's also interesting when you're, when you're in that room, like when people are at the microphone, like two thirds of the room is just like kind of cavorting and drunk and not even noticing who's on the stage at the time. So there's a ceiling to how serious you can get about all that. Yeah, I know. 
you know, the, the hosts are always kind of <laughs> not chastising their room but when they come back from commercial breaks, being like, hey, guys, we're back on TV. You know, maybe keep it down a little bit or things like that. And they, they always fought the battle to say, no, we're not on a fake awards show or a real awards show. Right, and, right. You know, we can have your position on that. But now add on to it a layer. But we're owned by the people who cover it and have put together thrown in people that we, we have no idea who they are. And uh, the coverage is all dictated by the producer of the show. So it's, it's real hard at this point to pretend this is anything but a giant charade, which, you know, Hollywood, Hollywood certainly knows is no stranger to charades. Yeah, well, that probably won't be part of the show, I'm sure, in terms of the mentioning. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Peter, the question elsewhere is you can have your messages and is anybody going to watch this show? Is there, you know, this is a bit of a tree falls in the forest situation. We've got uh, comedian Joe Coy, who's going to be hosting, who I think was announced, I don't know, the day before Christmas or something at this point. I mean, uh, Joe's very funny, so it could be a nice moment for him. But again, I did watch a little CBS last night and some research for uh, the podcast today. So watch a little The Price is Right at Night, and they were running some promos in there. I mean, funny, funny guy, but traditionally, if, if you're a first-tier awards show, you have a major... Movie star or television he's not star? At the, he's not Amy and Tina, oh. no, in terms of uh, notoriety or awareness at this point. He's very funny, but yeah, you know, three steps down below below that, what you, Ricky Gervais or whoever. Right. Uh, I mean, you had to, you know, Andy Samberg, whatever it might be. Yeah, exactly. But in the promos, they have Tom Hanks, Meryl Streep, Will Ferrell, and then the, a bunch of folks who I'm pretty sure will be nowhere within four miles of the Beverly Hilton on Sunday, Peter. What's, uh, what's your thought here? I, you know, it's funny. I think like many, I was at the top of this week, I was like kind of searching around to see if there was a pulse for the, this year's Golden Globes. And it, it it wasn't very promising. I think I had to remind certain people uh, that it was even happening who work in the I industry. I also had to do that a couple of times, yeah. Which is like, never oh, a you great guys, Is that sign. this Sunday? And I'm like, yeah, yeah it's this Sunday. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah. Now, I will say, I had dinner with a journalist friend who flew in from New York last night. And he came out for the event. And he is also sensing that this is as the later into the week, and I'm saying even in the last 48 hours here in LA, it's getting a little more buzz. There's a couple parties, which are always a decent sign. There's uh, W Magazine's throwing this event at the Chateau on Friday that is apparently is quite a good party. And then I think Vanity Fair and Amazon are throwing something on Saturday night. So there are some events that are building and you're getting some A-list talent who have committed, like Natalie Portman, Apparently has committed Margot Robbie. We got Leo DiCaprio showing up, apparently. Oh, okay. right. uh, Brad Bradley Cooper. Okay. And um, so, I mean, those are real names. And yeah. I do feel like as the week has dragged on that people are growing. It's coming up in conversations more and more. So it does feel like buzz is mounting. Those people are on the award circuit and they're campaigning now. And like Golden Globes may not be what it used to be, but... What else are you going to do on a Sunday night run your campaign? Like stand with a sign on uh, on Wilshire Boulevard? Hey, Leo is Leo, Richard. I, I mean, I don't I'm, – I'm, where he goes, people follow. Now, there's one name that we haven't mentioned that I think everyone is curious to know if they'll be president of the Globes, and that is Taylor Swift. There has been reports that she has committed. Obviously, her film is up for I think at least one award. And so I think that a lot of people are discussing whether or not I think she's committed. I saw a news report, I think, in the New York Post that's saying that she has. But as we know, she is a force right now. So just her I think her Richard, can you at least concede that if Taylor Swift shows up, 
this thing could grow into something bigger than we all predicted it would be. Well, and wherever wherever Taylor is now, that's where the attention is. It would be nice for them if they could promote that beforehand. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, definitely the, the promo has people who are not going to be there. So that's you know that's essentially where the promo is at at this point. I know that's I know that CBS is too incentivized to revise the promo at this point, Peter. You know, again, whatever the deal is here to get this show on the air. So I'm going to put money out now if anyone wants to take that. She's not going to be there. All right. I will caveat it. This is uh, one thing to, which Peter and I have discussed. It's up against an NFL game. She had, so the her boyfriend is playing in L.A. So the, the Chiefs are playing the Chargers, which is the leading game on CBS into the, into the Globe's red carpet, which, again, should help the audience a little bit. But it's also competing against the Bills and Dolphins on NBC on Sunday night, which uh, does a game with, with playoff implications in terms of, you know. I would say Taylor knows that you don't go you don't go to precursor awards. <laughs> she, Taylor saves Taylor well, for the how, how the big far event. how long is it to go from SoFi to Beverly Hills? I guess would be the, <laughs> the main. I question, just well, so. having been to SoFi Stadium for a number of games, I can tell you one of the challenges is going to be it's getting out of getting that out stadium. Of yeah, somehow so I think she can pull it off though. But yeah. now, I mean, I got to mention there was a, a a New York Times article about Travis Kelsey's uh, management yes, team management this team, week, yep. and they mentioned the fact that this guy sort of has aspirations. Far beyond just being a, an NFL uh, star, he's. They even mentioned the idea that he could be the next The Rock. So the prospect that he could sort of well, find his way out of SoFi Stadium into yeah the, into the actual award show would be like as a, a presenter. Huge... That, that would be a huge, if they came out as presenters. Oh that God. would be you know listen, and that's feasible by ten o'clock at night when you know or whatever or at, at East East Coast time, so seven o'clock at night there. So yeah. listen, if it, if it was. YouTube will, will, will profit because that's all the, that's the only place anybody's going to watch it, but that's fine too, since everybody's watching it after the fact. But yeah, well, we'll see. There could be, who knows? There could, the show could be talked about a bit for for a day or two uh, this year, but who knows? But I will. I'm going to put a poll in the wake up on Friday or t- today when you're listening to this and uh, asking Ankler readers, kind of wondering. What the audience might be here. Last year we had 6.3 million on NBC, which was a new low. The year before that was 6.9 million back in COVID 2021, and over 18 million in 2020 in a show that took place just before people started becoming very freaked out when anybody coughed in a room. Richard, what do you got? How many people are going to tune in for this on Sunday? 5.1. 5.1. Okay, fair That's enough. What I'm All saying. right. All right. So I should. So parameter wise, I should maybe go. What's my low? What's my low number for the poll, Richard? But how low should I go? I mean, below five million, you're pretty much in the. Uh, why not just run two and a half men? Uh, rerun. <laughs> well, yeah. So. Well, Yellowstone gets four point five million on Sunday, so that that is your comp. So that is the time slot comp this year is Yellowstone at four point five million. So yeah, maybe I'll, maybe I'll do that as the as the as the low low. People do love to be uh, bears in these polls, so I, I don't think they've won over any new any new converts converts to the award circuit or to the show in particular since last year. So yeah, yeah, and the competition on NBC is certainly big. But six point three last year, Peter. What do you got this year? I'm sorry. What, what did Richard go with? Five point one. We going with the prices right rules here. What well, do we got? As as <laughs> as the new chief Golden Globes correspondent, I'm going to be a little bit more optimistic <laughs> about that, and I'm going to go with five point five. How about that? 5.5. All right. I'm I'm going to go I'm going to go 47. I'm going the bear here. I'm going to go low. So that that's uh that's me. So we shall see the poll in, in the wake up newsletter on Friday morning. All right. Well, Richard, let's move over to your piece here. You had some thoughts for the industry as we start the year, some resolutions as you put it. Leading off with, you know, make things you can believe in, Richard. So you had some ideas here. Yeah. So I ended up last year with some roundups and looking back, and it, it was pretty grim. 
thinking of turning a page and and, and looking up and being uh, positive things about this. And I would say a lot of my resolutions fit under the category of, yes, make things you believe in and try to make them good and spend time on them to make them best you can. You, you look at Disney, for instance. If Disney had had two new breakout franchises the last year that came, that came from nowhere, conversation about Disney would be totally different today than what we're talking about. It's just, why are we surprised when on TV we're throwing so much stuff, 600 shows at people of which, you know, maybe 30 are any good. So you're throwing 570 mediocre shows at people. You've stopped paying attention to the product line. The Bob Iger admitted Dave Marvel took their eye off the ball uh, and everything. And so you're, you're putting out scads of mediocrity. And why are we surprised that people are turning away from scripted entertainment as a result of that? And once again, making film, which is your biggest products, the center of, of what you do and really taking care and attention to, to make them special. I think if if I had one resolution to force down Hollywood's throat, it would be that. Don't make anything, don't release anything that you don't feel is something great and something special that really merits them leaving their house, getting a babysitter, paying a lot of money, sitting through horrible pre-show ads, waiting on a long popcorn line and everything else to see this thing that you made. Yeah, it got me thinking as well. And that's a topic I've been thinking about. You know, I think there's a sense of bewilderment, you know, after this year, how do we get here? How do we get to this point of the, the, the massive layoffs, the all, the all the headlines are cut back, cut back, cut back, you know? And it's, it's worth going back. I'm putting 10 years on the horizon, 2013, random a bit, but before this streaming fire hose began. So 2013, there were 350 shows. This is an era of, you know, House of Cards was new. Uh, I think Breaking Bad was still around. Plenty of great TV on the air. No one was saying in 2013 with 350 shows, man, I have nothing to watch. And yeah. this whole fire hose people was a response were to that. People complaining that there was they too much back then. then. <laughs> there was too much to watch back then. So reverting to this mean, I mean, I get, you know, look, it means a lot less jobs around town, a lot less spending, and I'm not, you know, belittling that in this sense. But this got way out of control in the late 2010s. And now, and, the, and this was done with one ethos in mind, chase Netflix, do what Netflix is doing. Netflix does what works for Netflix. And everybody learned it doesn't work for everybody else. And it is, which is, what, this is what the era we are now in. And it's very painful to go back from this era of 600 shows to, again, who knows, 400, 300 shows. And this is what we're in right now. And this is what it feels like. It's a bubble burst. It's, you know, any industry. This isn't just, you know, Hollywood. Any industry, you know, could be doing this. And it's very painful. But look at the origins of this. It goes back to what you were talking about, Richard, of that. That was arguably more of an era of shows you made that you believed in, not because you could sell it to somebody and get a check for, you know, whatever it was for 10 episodes and, oh, okay, great. You know, the origin of this stuff needs to revert, revert back to that. And in 2013, there were new voices being discovered. It wasn't like this, like, oh, well, you're only going to get shows from these people and that's it. I'm like, I don't recall 2013 being a time of no creativity in the television business. It was quite frankly, there's the golden era, right? So this return to that, you know, as lines of what you're talking about, Richard, I, it's healthy, it's painful, but I think it's healthy is what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, 
you also you had a, a limited number of slots. If you were even even HBO, the titan of right the last era, they couldn't launch seventy new shows a year. They they're the ones who didn't. They kept that. HBO-ness about them. You know, those shows were Mac shows that were elsewhere uh, uh, launched. Yeah, and if you were an executive and your entire slate failed, that meant bad things for your career. Or if if 90% of them failed... Uh, yep. That meant bad. So, so you actually, you actually thought about right. What are we making? Not, ah, go, let's take one of everything. You weren't judged for that. The judge, there's a lot of judgment going on because, like, ah, well, we have 20 of them, and no one's really cares, and nobody, we, you know, money's cheap, and yada yada yada. Now it's like, yeah, your your butt's on the line here. And you, as you mentioned in the last pod, now that we have more data coming out. The actors are getting, you know, this stuff is be like, oh, yeah, your your quote's going to go down now. No one, this this myth of you can just put this stuff out there and there's no repercussions across executives and for talent. Richard is changing, you know, and that's a healthy thing in that sense. When yeah, when more's on the line, you care more, right, Richard? Yeah, and you you, you see a lot of shows on TV these days on various services that have a, a exciting cast, a great concept. And by the end of episode two, you're just like, all right, I get it. I think I've had enough of this. Like that, that's happened to all of us. Like many times, that, that's, that's sort of the rule of how it goes for new shows. That's now. the like, sentiment. As you said, it's a dangerous thing. I mean, how many shows have you watched where it's like, yeah, I watched, you know, I've heard that conversation more times than I'd like, I think, to recall. So for executives to make choices, like make choices that really say something about who you are, who your network is, who your service is. You know, the, the days of HBO, there were plenty of good shows that they were just like, this is a great show, but it's not right for us. Yeah, famously, yeah. And then you work those shows as hard as you can to make sure that- You promote them and you market them and you get that yeah. out there. And yeah. if it yeah. takes an extra three years to work on the script, then then you take the extra three years and you work on the marketing, you think about how this will get out. And as a result, you have something- Really solid, usually, and if you yeah. don't, if you don't, you get fired, and maybe the next the next guy has uh, better. And there's better the new new blood, Richard, too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which is another topic you alluded to, but uh, want to move over to one other just final point here. Don't condescend to, I guess, or you know, uh, whatever your specific wording on it was, but it's you know, a program <laughs> for everybody, not just for your friends at the country club. I think. Yeah, I mean, there's a, a limited number of. Uh, entertainment companies that are really focused on kind of a boutique niche, heavily representing media professionals. And for the rest of them, your potential audience is everybody. In this year, especially as things are going to become very heated, if right, if right. your stars, your, your, your companies go out and, and insult half the audience, well, you just you just cut off half your potential audience. So probably should think about cutting off half your salary uh, along with that. Hollywood should be about connecting people and about soothing people during these perilous times. And if we're not doing that, we're not any good to anybody. And no one, no one needs us here. If we think our job is to get in their face and tell them how stupid they are if they don't see things the way we are, you know, that's the world's on the fence about whether they they need this business, and that'll mm. that'll help them decide on that. Yeah, and Elaine's certainly written, written a lot about this, about what pitches are going in, and it's definitely that you know, <laughs> audiences matter again. Audience size matters again. Where before the niche was there for many years, the niche was oh well that was fine, and now people are back to that mean. And I will make a note: 
just on the the top the, the Nielsen chart, you know, weekly Nielsen chart came out last week. Top shows: Young Sheldon, NCIS, Grey's Anatomy, Bluey. Uh, you know, this isn't <laughs> this is what what what's America watching? I'm like, that is the U.S. Uh, Nielsen chart right there. Not to mention. I know, you know, broadcast TV gets dumped on a lot, but a lot of Netflix's success comes from the world of network TV. And if that goes away, that's not just a problem for Warner Brothers and NBCU and, and Disney, by the way. So, you know, there is a collective interest in keeping this mass entertainment alive for the long tail of the business as well. So just uh, something to think about. All right. Up next, uh, Claire Atkinson is going to join us to dive into her latest piece on Hollywood's Saudi Whisperer. So we'll be back in a moment. This episode of the Ankler Podcast is brought to you by Universal Pictures' Oppenheimer, written and directed by Christopher Nolan. The New York Times calls it staggering, and the Washington Post declares Oppenheimer is a masterpiece, brilliantly acted and thoroughly engrossing. Killian Murphy gives, quote, a performance that imprints on the imagination. And the LA Times says Robert Downey Jr. is outstanding, and Emily Blunt brings a startling force to the role. It's, quote, one of the best movies of the century. Oppenheimer, for your consideration in all categories, including Best Picture, now nominated for eight Golden Globe Awards, including Best Picture Drama. All right, we now have uh, Ankler contributor Claire Atkinson joining us. Claire, good to see you here fresh in the new year for uh, Hollywood and the media business with the uh, same old problems. Uh, <laughs> good to see you. How are you? Yay, I'm very well. Glad to be back in the saddle. Happy Thank New you. Year to you, Sean. Thank you very much. But it sounds like with the old problems, the, the town uh, increasingly has some access to some new fresh money in the Middle East. I will, of course, mention here at the top, just a disclaimer, the future Saudi production hub Neom has advertised in the Angler, just having that out as a disclaimer. But Claire, I guess we'll, let's start where most things start in your, your new piece uh, coming out this weekend. Follow the lawyers. What's afoot in Saudi Arabia? <laughs> yes. Follow the lawyers, indeed. If there's any sure sign of business activity, it is when <laughs> the U.S. law firms start opening offices in Riyadh, which they, they've been doing in the legions, Gibson Don, Kirkland Ellis, Greenberg Traurig, and the London firm Miskondorea. They're all there, and they're all there in part because there's a new Saudi law that says, you know, if you're doing business here, we'd like you to keep the the business as local as possible. Mm. We don't want it going back to Hollywood or, or wherever. And so we're seeing lots of law firms opening, bankers doing business over there, and an explosion of the Hollywood film, TV, esports, soccer you name it, they've got literally billions of dollars to spend on growing this economy, not just at home, but they're looking to do what Hollywood did back in the day. They want to export their content and have it run on streamers that are global in the same way, you know, you have Netflix out there, you, you have Saudi properties trying to do the same thing. You know, I had, hadn't been to MIPCOM, which is a big programming market in, in October for quite some years. And I was really surprised to see the extent of the presence of the Saudis. They bought the logos on the bags for the event. They Neom had a gigantic stand there, which was huge and lavish and played constantly rolling video of the location that they're trying to encourage people to come film at. That's just one of one location in the country. So I took a look at, you know, who are the power brokers here? Who's over there? Lots of Western people have decamped for Riyadh. 
And, you know, they're the people you need to talk to if you want to access some of the money. And the money resides in a, in a couple of different places. The biggest pot of gold, I guess you'd say, is the public investment funds, $700 billion sovereign wealth fund. I think it's one of the world's biggest. Yeah. That's invested in, you know, the likes of Blackstone and Uber. Yeah. But it also, you know, they've invested in all kinds of media industry efforts and, and not least Newcastle United in the UK. Well, sports, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sports is like its its own story. It's it's the, the, the size. World, the, world, the World Cup is coming back to the desert in uh, what, 2034, I think it is. Called. That's right, 2034. Because it went so well. Saudi <laughs> Kingdom, I guess, is the, what I read was they're, they're literally the only bidder here. So they're very serious about sports. They've signed Neymar. They've signed Cristiano Ronaldo. Obviously, we haven't touched on Liv and the PGA. PGA, PGA that merger yeah. is still so, being talked about. Still um, pending, yeah. Yes, yeah. So it is a challenge in some ways to Hollywood because as the big media companies retrench and restructure what their ambitions were globally, you have this country, the biggest in the Middle East, spending all this money attracting Western filmmakers to come film in the desert, 40% cash rebates. Uh, uh -huh. It's very, very lucrative. Yeah. And if you can figure it out and if you can get to the right people, you can access that money. There's also the film festival routes, the Red Sea International Film Festival is another yes. effort that's helping producers that their efforts are aimed primarily at uh, talent from the MENA region, which is Middle East and North Africa. And so what we saw on December 18th was a local film beating out Wonka and setting a new record for box office. And as you know, the, the cinema had been closed down for 35 years and only very recently could people go back to watching the cinema. And, you know, we should link all this back to the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who came to Hollywood in 2018, I think it was, met with Ari Emanuel, met with Rupert Murdoch, did the rounds of uh, Tim Cook. He went to Silicon Valley, talked to those guys too, with an eye on attracting investment and being a player in the entertainment industry. And as we know, that effort went awry after the murder of the Washington Post reporter, Jamal Khashoggi. Yeah. And... Seemingly, that's there was a lot of outrage at the time, and it uh, again, your reporting and so forth. That is, I mean, seemingly gone away for some people. I don't, you know, I don't know. It's a. Uh, I think it's something that's always going to be re referenced. I don't. It's always think referenced, that, but it doesn't yeah. stop anything. Is what I'm, you know, is what I'm saying. I don't know that it's prohibiting. It's been prohibitive for most people. I mean, the, you know, right. the Red Sea the, this past year was Will Smith, Gwyneth, Johnny Depp, uh, everybody getting their million dollar checks or whatever the reported thing was to show up. You yeah. know, the money, money talks, and not that we should be surprised at that, Claire. I guess at this point, but. You know the more the moral standing is uh, maybe sh shifting a little bit uh, over time. So, yeah, um, social activism is is in the background. That's for sure. When you're doing your research on this piece and the reporting, did you get the sense that the entertainment industry was courting these dollars, or was it the outreach coming more from you know the Saudis or, or uh, the Qataris? Obviously, have a very large presence in the entertainment industry as well. I'm wondering which way do you see the courtship going? Is one side more interested than the other? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it, it feels to me that it had been courted and now very much it's being sought after. 
And that could be a product of the, you know, the Hollywood cutbacks everywhere, that there isn't as much money as there was around and that it's a you know, fresh source of funds. Um, and, you know, I don't want to downplay, there's a sense of kind of excitement that this is a, a very fast moving, fast growing, explosive market for the media industry. And people are looking at it. There was a quote from Tarak Ben Amar, uh, the Tunisian film producer and distributor who likened what's going on there right now to California in the 1920s, which shows you that it's not just Hollywood decamping for the Middle East. It is also them trying to lure talent to teach the folks who are there to make the kind of content that can travel um, as part of this Vision 2030 effort under uh, the Crown Prince, which is about diversifying ultimately away from the oil industry and looking to position themselves as a very futuristic place to to come and do business. There was another great story that I'd read about a theme park that just opened in Riyadh called the House of Hype, which is uh, almost like a, a shopping center with all these immersive experiences, kind of like the sphere in Las Vegas. And you know, it read to me as if, you know, we're kind of here thinking that we have so much to teach them and they're already playing in the future and they have a very young population. Uh, gaming is huge. They're going to host the World Cup of esports this year and esports is something that they, you know, are using as a, as a marketing tool to grow tourism in the country. Yeah, so we'll see where the money flows through, you know, in terms of U.S. productions and to Peter's point, yeah, are people... Co-productions, things along those lines, Peter. Where is that? Are they, you know, is that being an active well to look at? You know, as as film financing becomes yeah. much more challenging in the U.S. stage too, Peter. So, yeah, right. It, well, I mean, just here in in L.A., it's interesting because it's no secret that there's huge amounts of money sloshing around in the film and television and streaming worlds. But what I have found is that people don't necessarily like to talk about it. That they've right. taken mm -hmm. that money, and I think that gets back to your the the sort of stigma surrounding the what happened to with with uh, the murder of uh, Jamal Khashoggi whether or not yeah. that's that's sort of dissipated over the past however many years uh, is subject to debate but i think there's a lot more money around than people ultimately acknowledge and whether or not, i think that could change though i, I actually do think that it's going to be the stigma mm -hmm. is sort of is 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 dissolving a little bit uh, as as time goes by and, and, yeah. and as the industry comes into sort of more dire financial situations it, i th i think that could shift a great piece you can go check it out over at theangler.com including the names to know uh, claire in the region a lot of people there have good uh, the top 10 yeah. list i think a good uh, top people to know of the movers and shakers both locally and on the global stage there so a good piece over at theangler.com all right we're going to come back real quick with a special treat kind of a <laughs> Call it a bedtime story, a uh, interesting encounter with Andy Lewis of The Optionist. So we'll be uh, back in a second. All right, we're going to change things up here to finish out the first podcast of the new year. Always good to keep things fresh and uh, end with a reading. I'm joined now by Andy Lewis, who writes The Optionist at The Ankler, which is a separate newsletter, which is about uh, available intellectual property that's available for Hollywood to option, which you can sign up for at theoptionist.substack.com. Andy, good to see you. Hi, Sean. How are you? Doing well, thank you. So, Andy, you track many hot properties in the Hollywood literary world and, and other sources, certainly, but a very special one came onto your radar recently, which you wrote about this week. So uh, clue us in here as to what's afoot. Well, there was a really interesting announcement about an HBO project from Frank 
rich of Veep and Succession fame and Mark Makowski, who wrote the great HBO movie Bad Education about a corrupt superintendent in Long Island. And they announced they were going to do a George Santos biopic. Mm-hmm. Which I'm sure uh, when you heard that, your ears perked up a little bit. So you looked, dove into the, the matter a little further to see what was going on. Yeah, I reached out to George to ask him what he thought. Go to the source, Andy. Go to the source. Exactly. And right after Christmas, he wrote me back. Oh, that's just to say Merry Christmas or, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you got a nice you got a nice note, Andy, I guess. Right. So this is uh, with details and information, right? Yeah. Here's what he said. Here's my take. HBO, along with Simon and Schuster, were all scammed by the fabulous Mark Chisano. Mark claimed to have ample access to me. That's a lie. Mark claims to be a George Santos specialist. That's a lie. For the record, Mark has been blocked on my phone since December 2020. Mark has failed to get my take or the take of any family member or friend of mine. So the whole book is a big, fabulous figment of Mark's imagination. And uh, the Mark he's referring to is Mark Chisano, the author of the book, a award-winning journalist, used to be for Newsday, who wrote uh, The Fabulous, which is an account of George Santos' rise. So what do you think? This project moved forward? This, this probably doesn't prohibit this kind of thing at in in this point, right, Andy? Oh, I definitely think this moves forward. And in fact, Mark's book hasn't got great reviews, but hasn't been on the bestseller list. But I think this is the kind of project where book sales don't actually matter that much about the enthusiasm for HBO doing this with Mark and Frank Rich, because I think this could be a great dark comedy. I, I think they're, <laughs> they have some thoughts there. Were you surprised to hear back uh, putting that email out into the world or that, did that not surprise you, Andy? Uh, I was not surprised. The only thing that disappointed me was I asked George who he wanted to play him in the oh. movie, and he did not take the bait on that question. But mm-hmm. I was really looking forward to what he imagined he looks like on screen. <laughs> right. Possibilities are endless. I don't know. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm put my mind to that one, Andy. And a lot of options there for people to, to someone to dive into that role. And certainly a film at HBO. You know, HBO used to do these kind of films a lot. I feel like they haven't done them in a while, Andy. So it's nice to see them kind of returning to an of the moment kind of thing, Andy. That's right. And also, you know, the screenwriter they hired, Mark Makowski, actually grew up in George Santos's district. And Bad Education is set in Roslyn, which is also part of of Santos's district. So uh, it's another reason why I think this is a a great pairing. It's Frank Rich, who's done great work with a a screenwriter who not only has written a kind of funny, dark comedy, but one set actually where this story takes place. So those are reasons why I think that this has a good shot of moving forward and moving forward quickly. Yeah. Plenty of stories on Long Island, that's for sure. Andy, thanks uh, for the bedtime story to finish out the podcast this week. And thanks to Claire, Peter, and Richard, of course. Uh, Richard, are you, you're doing five columns next week. Do I, is, is this a joke that someone sent me? Or uh, did, you, did you lose a bet I'm not aware of? Or what, what's going on here? Doing a very special series uh, next week of looking at five at crossroads. We're at a big turning point here in Hollywood, and so much hangs on what just a, a very small number of people decide about the, the future of their companies and the future of this business. And I'm going to try and look at what what might be in the head of those people. All right. But uh, we'll see what we'll see what your energy level is like next Thursday in the podcast. So yeah. we'll uh, keep the coffee handy. I'll put it that way. Okay. Anyway, you can get all of Richard's work, including that series next week, uh, plus my daily wake up newsletter and all the work from Peter, Elaine, Claire and the rest of the Ankler team by subscribing at theankler.com and follow the Ankler on the socials at the Ankler. And of course, a thanks to you for listening. And we'll see you next week. 